This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Kia ora, you're listening to the locals on Free FM 89.0. Kotena Antrong Tokuengua. Back in the olden days of 2019, I did some episodes on the invasion of the Waikato, colonisation, and Te Ao Māori. It was fascinating, and I loved it. But for some reason, one interview fell through the cracks and was never broadcast. That interview was with historian Dr Vincent O'Malley, whose work in communicating and supporting the understanding of our history has been incredible, including the Crown's invasion of the Waikato. So during this latest lockdown, I spotted it and thought, right, let's correct this. And I now bring you part one of that long-lost piece. This half will be laying down the foundations about Vincent himself and the issues preceding the invasion. And in part two, we'll be looking at specific events with a Waipa focus. So let's crack into it. This is The Locals, and this is Dr Vincent O'Malley. Well, I grew up in, in Christchurch, um, big working-class Irish Catholic family, and um, I almost sort of stumbled into New Zealand history accidentally. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to university at a time when um, it was still free, so I could get there, but also you could study what you had a passion for rather than with some kind of vocational plan um, uh, with, with the idea of a career at the end of it. So I had a, a huge passion for history, I loved it. Uh, went to university, enrolled in a whole bunch of history courses, majored in that in political science. At university I had a really great history teacher, but he point blank refused to teach us any New Zealand history. I, and I asked him about this one day and he said, it's boring, nothing happened in this country, move on. So we did nothing but European history, the Russian Revolution, the English Civil War and so on. I loved all that stuff, you know, I loved history. So that's what I did when I went to university. And then after a few weeks I was, um, I decided to drop out of something else. I think it was economics and I was looking for a filler course. And I looked in the student magazine that said New Zealand History 101 was, um, you know, rated a good filler course and I thought it would probably be boring. Nothing happened here after all, according to my old history teacher. So I enrolled in that and I was blown away. And I thought, why, did, why didn't I know this stuff? Why didn't I learn the history of this country at school? And um, that's the question I ask today as well. So many New Zealanders learn nothing at all about the history of this country. So anyway, you know, after that, I was away. I was obsessed, had a passion for New Zealand history. Um, and then um, sometime later, I was offered a, a three-month contract in Wellington researching treaty claims for Iwi. Uh, and that was 25 years ago now, so I'm still here, still working for Iwi, involved in the claims process and writing books as well. Despite spending a good chunk of my life in Te Aumotu and Taumaranui, it wasn't until after I finished high school that I discovered the things that had happened locally, so I can, I can understand where mm. you're coming from there. It's still quite a step to get from going to doing several months of research to becoming effectively well, one of New Zealand's leading authorities on the invasion of the Waikato and you know, advocating for just understanding our history. Mm. Are there any big moments 
in those couple decades where you realise that this is big, but crikey, this is this is going to take over my life, and here I'm going to be here for another you know good few decades. Yeah, well, the key moment for me in terms of uh, the Waikato war history and understanding just how important it was was um, well, obviously reading works by people like James Belloch, his, you know, his seminal work on the New Zealand wars, but um, in about 2006, the Waitangi Tribunal commissioned me to write a couple of reports on the Waikato War, its origins and consequences and so on. And at the time I, I, I um, was commissioned to do this, the assumption amongst everybody seemed to be that the story had been told before we knew it all, what was new to say about this. And um, as I got into the project, I realised that couldn't be further from the truth. And the things that I learnt about the Waikato War and, and its um, significance and some of the things that happened blew me away. And, um, you know, it was, it was at that time I thought, well, you know, people need to know this. Because one of the things about the claims process is, for most of the time, it's just iwi talking to the Crown. And other New Zealanders aren't part of that conversation. Often they have no idea of the history behind the claims because they weren't taught it at school. So how do you get information about this history out to people? And so one, that's why you know I spend my spare time writing books, writing blog posts, and on social media and so on, sharing information about the New Zealand wars um, and you know the Waikato War in particular, which I've argued is you know probably the defining conflict in New Zealand history. Uh, what's the one thing about the invasion that you think everyone should know? Well, one of the things that um, I worked out when I was doing this research for the Waitangi Tribunal um, was that casualty rates in the Waikato War were probably higher on a per capita basis than those suffered by New Zealand troops during World War One, which is supposed to be, you know, the greatest bloodbath in New Zealand history. Well, that that was here. It happened on our own shores, and. Um, you know, once I worked that out, uh, I thought, again, this, this is, you know, people need to know this stuff. They need to understand that these conflicts were um, huge in their significance, but they also had horrific consequences for Māori on the receiving end of British bullets. And pe people don't understand that. You know, in the immediate aftermath of the Waikato War, there were reports of people dying of starvation. This is in New Zealand, you know? Um, and, and those stories, that that, um, you know, the horrific consequences of the conflict, are, are, it's not widely understood. And neither, I think, is it understood um, just how important this was in terms of the longer-term history of New Zealand. Uh, it, the Waikato War is, is a turning point in New Zealand history, arguably one of the most important, because, you know, people know that the Treaty of Waitangi is signed in 1840, what a lot of people don't understand is that the British didn't just come in in 1840 and have absolute control over the entire country. For the next two decades, most areas, Māori communities, managed their own affairs as they always had, and as was promised them under the treaty. Um, but there's this crown assumption that they should be in charge. Pākehā come to New Zealand and think we're, we are the superior beings why aren't we in charge? They look around at powerfully we like Tainui, who are, you know, probably, you know, the most powerful community in New Zealand. 
Um, not only that, but the leading drivers of New Zealand's economy through the 1840s and 1850s, um, and the owners of huge areas of very valuable lands. And there's a kind of resentment about that, and there's a, there's a desire to crush Māori independence so that Pākehā would be, finally be in charge. And so the Waikato War, I would say, is a battle between two competing visions of what the country was and what it could, what it could become. On one hand, as I say, these Pākehā kind of assumptions of racial dominance that we should be in charge. On the other hand, Māori ideas of mutual prosperity and partnership of the kind that had been promised them in the treaty, that Māori and Pākehā would live together, would work together for the benefit of all. And those those two different visions, um, I think the moment when um, they come into to conflict um, is in the Waikato War. It's a conflict for what the country was, what it could become, and that's why it's so important. We've already discussed how a lot of people don't realise how pivotal these moments were. And I think because my show is focused on the Waipa district, I don't think people realise how valuable that region of the Waikato was. Do you want to elaborate on how fertile and productive it was? Yeah, so those lands, you know, Rangiafia, Te Aumutu, Kihiki and so on, that's, um, that's probably one of the most prosperous areas in New Zealand through the 1840s and 1850s. And um, the Tainui tribes are um, at the forefront of the New Zealand economy in this period. They're the leading drivers of the economy. Um, the settlers in Auckland are almost entirely dependent on Māori to feed them. Um, there's a, a, an Auckland newspaper in 1844 that says um, that if it wasn't for, for Māori feeding them, the settlers would have been literally starved out of the country. And the same newspaper went on to say that Māori were the greatest blessing that, that Pākehā had in this country. Again, that's the thing that a lot of Pākehā don't realise today, just how utterly reliant they were on Māori in this period. Um, the way that Māori dominated the economy through the 1840s and 1850s. And a lot of, a lot of that is centred in the, in the Waipā district. Um, if you look on a map at the number of flour mills in, in the 1850s, they're a huge number in that area. Um, and, you know, produce has not just been taken to Auckland, but it's also been... Um, exported to the goldfields in Victoria and even California. There are some young rangatira from Rangiafia who um, grind some flour uh, at their own mill and, and they, send, they send this flour to Queen Victoria. Um, you know, they're so proud of their achievements and the, the British government is, is a bit peeved by this because the protocol is you don't send unsolicited gifts to the royal family because you know, th there's the burden of some kind of response. But anyway, Queen Victoria sends back a couple of lithographs of the royal family, of, of the Queen and, and, and Prince Albert and of their children. And, and when these come to New Zealand, they're, they're kind of a sensation. And, and you know, huge crowds of Māori flock to them and, and they're held at Rangiafia. I think one, one by the Catholics and one by the Anglicans. And um, one of them is destroyed in the invasion of Rangiafia, possibly. The other one turns up many years later and it's in Te Aumutu Museum today. But the whole story of, of that and um, you know, the pride of those people and of that community about their economic success, their endeavours and so on, um, 
and um, so that's why you know th there's this relationship that that Māori have in, in Waikato and Waipara and wider districts through the 1840s and 1850s, which is that their economy is entirely reliant on on trade, feeding the settlers of Auckland and so on. Which is why, when in 1863, when Governor Gray accuses them of plotting to attack the settlement of Auckland and kill its residents. Well, that would have been suicidal for Tainui. Why would they destroy the main outlet for their produce? Um, and, you know, so, the, you know, this was a, um, there was no evidence, uh, credible evidence at all for that. That was a, um, that was part of what I, I call Governor Gray's dodgy dossier that he used to justify a premeditated war of conquest and invasion. You're listening to The Locals on Free FM 89.0. Welcome back. We continue my interview with Dr Vincent O'Malley. How powerful was uh, Governor Gray and his ministers and you know, the newspapers' propaganda? And uh, how, Has it perpetuated to today? I think so. Uh, I, you know, at the time it was um, incredibly influential within New Zealand, although um, less so in Britain, where people weren't, you know, didn't buy it quite so easily. But one of the key things um, that Gray and government ministers did at the time was to depict Rewi Maniapoto as a warmonger, as um, somebody who was going to lead this imminent invasion of Auckland. And Gray said he had no choice but to attack Waikato, it was a preemptive move to avoid this, this terrible thing that was going to unfold. The problem with that argument is that Rabi Maniapoto was in Taupo at the time that the Waikato War started, when, when British troops crossed the Mangatafiti on the 12th of July 1863. That's the wrong place to be if you're going to attack Auckland at any moment, surely. And so time and again there's this kind of denigration of Rabi Maniapoto, he's painted as an extremist, somebody who hates Pākehā, and so on. In fact, in this period through the early 1860s, you can see on numerous occasions, he, he expresses his uh, firm desire for peace. What he's not prepared to do is abandon the Kīnitanga, and this is what Gray demands. And I think Rāwi Maniapoto, while he didn't want war, he I think he realised that um, if Māori didn't abandon the King movement, it was a question of when, not if, they would be attacked. And so I think in that sense he was a realist. He was prepared for war, not planning for war. That seems to be this, the same issue that happened for a lot of leading Māori likes of Wedamu, Tamihana. How, what was the conflict for Māori leaders at that time, uh, balancing, uh, keeping their communities safe, preventing massacres which did end up happening at times, and uh, trying to have some sort of peace and, and trade maintained. Yeah, well, it was a terrible dilemma. And I mean, I think it's interesting to talk about Wadamutamihana because um, there's this idea that's still quite prevalent today that you know, Rabi Maniapoto was the leader of the supposed extremist wing of the Kingitanga, and Wudamu Tamihana was the leader of the moderates. And I would argue that the difference between them is really that Rabi Maniapoto was a realist about the consequences of what might happen if 
they didn't voluntarily abandon the kintanga. Whereas Wurtemur Timihana, I think, was a, more of an idealist, a man of deep Christian convictions. And, and he thought that um, the Pākehā politicians he dealt with also professed to be Christian so that you know, he could um, appeal to their, their shared sense of morality um, and, and, and decency. Um, but that wasn't the case at all. Um, you know, the, people like Gray and so on were planning all along this um, premeditated war of conquest and invasion. It didn't really matter what these rangatira did in response. After the invasion starts, the 12th of July 1863, um, I think the overriding concern for the Kingitanga, for Māori and the Waikato and Waipā, is to, to minimise their losses, both in terms of the number of people who are killed, also in terms of the land that's seized by, by British troops, um, and in terms of the other damage to their economic infrastructure. So. This is what military historians would call asymmetrical warfare. You've got the world's sole superpower at the time, which Great Britain was in the 1860s, up against essentially a civilian population. Um, you know, who, um, you know, for at least the last 20 years had, had been almost entirely devoted to economic endeavours, to growing wheat and, and exporting produce and so on. You know, Tainui didn't have a standing army they didn't have artillery, they didn't have uh, a supply train. Um, there were people who, if they went to war, they'd have to take their own food with them. And if they ran out of food, they'd have to stop fighting and go back and, and, and grow some more. So where it compared with the, the enormous resources at the disposal of the British Army, I mean, under the circumstances, this, this was no contest. And when you think about it, just surviving under those circumstances was kind of miraculous in a way. Um, a tiny person who read my book said to me, he read it as a survival narrative, we're still here, despite everything that was thrown, thrown at us, the enormous um, military barrage directed against um, the Tainui people. They survived and the Kenitana survived as well. And that wasn't in Governor Gray's script. He didn't go to war to, to teach the Kenitana a lesson, he wanted to destroy it and he failed in that objective. So. Although the war caused enormous um, damage and harm to the Tainui people, um, it wasn't um, it wasn't a complete victory for the Crown. I think it was, I agree with James Bellich that it was a limited victory. Uh, it's come up and mentioned several times now, uh, but I wanted to know. Uh, the value of the Kintanga in its creation and why Gray saw it as such a threat that it needed effectively extermination. Yeah, so the Kintanga, the Māori King movement, established in 1858 and um, Wurimu Tamihana, who raises up the first Māori King, talks about it as a fence for us all, Māori and Pākehā. So he saw it as something that would bring people together as a source of unity, not a source of division. And so this idea that it was um, a threat to um, the British Crown was, was kind of hard for people like Wurimu Tamihana to understand because they still looked up to Queen Victoria um, and they didn't see their own movement as, as a challenge to that. They saw it as something that was complementary. Uh, and indeed the, the idea of a Māori king was inspired by, you know, 
various Māori visitors to Europe, like Tamihana Tadaupraha, who'd met with Queen Victoria and come back and said, well, why, why don't we have, you know, a figure that can unite Māori as a people? And um, part of the reason they wanted that was because you, you get a settler parliament established in New Zealand under the 1852 New Zealand Constitution Act, but Māori are excluded from that parliament. It, it's an all Pākehā parliament until the late 1860s when Māori are finally allowed in. So this crucial period through the 1850s and most of the 1860s, you've got a parliament that's established that's overwhelmingly hostile to Māori interests. And um, so there are some Pākehā at the time who think the Kīngtanga is a positive thing and they welcome it and they think that the government should attempt to work with it. But Gray and his predecessor, Thomas Gore Brown, both see the Kīngtanga as a threat to Crown sovereignty, as something that needs to be taken out. When people from the Waikato district go and fight in the Taranaki War in 1860, um, that's seen as, as something that, that um, is again an indication of, of the threat that's posed by the Kīngitanga. But those people go there after considering the merits of what, you know, they, could, they receive a plea from Taranaki Māori for assistance um, after they're attacked by the Crown. And they look into the merits of the case and the Crown's um, purchase of lands at Waitara and, and they find that to be unjust so under the circumstances given the strong connections between Taranaki and Waikato there's kind of a, a customary obligation to, to go to the assistance of kin at a time of need just as many people do during the Waikato War in 1863-64 so um, by 1861 Thomas Gore Brown who's, who's the governor um, until he's replaced later in that year um, actually starts actively planning an invasion of Waikato. And that's the really interesting part of the factual history because had an invasion gone ahead in 1861, there's no doubt the Crown would have been absolutely smashed. Um, Brown had about a quarter of the troops that were available to Grey in 1863 at the time of the invasion. He had no Great South Road, he had no steamers, didn't have the resources. So. You know, that would have been catastrophic had there been an invasion in 1861. He's replaced by, by Gray, who takes one look, says we're not ready for a war with Waikato. And, and, you know, one of the first things he does is order the construction of the Great South Road so that troops can get immediately to the front, water steamers, builds up troop numbers enormously. Um, and so, 1863, Gray's objective, as I said, is to destroy the Kīngitanga. It's not just to teach it a lesson. Um, and, you know, prior to that, there are various opportunities for Gray to reconcile with the Kīngitanga. And, and he goes to various hui with Māori and the Waikato, and he's asked, what's, what's your intention? And he says, at one of them, he says to dig around the Kīngitanga, uh, to dig around the Māori king until he falls of his, his own accord. And that's taken as a statement that, that Grey will not allow the Māori King to survive under any circumstances. So I think this is the point at which people like Rowi Maniapoto start thinking um, that uh, an invasion of Waikato is, is going to happen at some point in the future. And, and sadly, he's right about that. So there you have it, part one. I hope you found it interesting. I expect you may have found it challenging if you didn't know about this, if it was new to you, if, if you hadn't properly been taught it at school, like so many, us, so many of us have. 
Now, next week's episode is going to be focusing in on rangiafia, orako, that type of thing. So between now and then, I'd really recommend checking out Mihi Forbes's series, NZ Wars, Tainui Stories on RNZ. It's a great place to, to, to start. And if you really want that mega deep dive, go for Vincent's The Great War for New Zealand, Waikato 1800 to 2000, uh, which you can even get at the Te Aumotu Library. Um, just ask at the front desk. Alternately, Scott Hamilton's Ghost South Road is another great piece too. If you were listening to this and thought, yeah, I dug it, I, I want to hear more, I, I, I want more local history, that, that's fantastic. Um, the episode I'd be pointing you to would be my interview with Dr. Marilyn Waring. That and so many other episodes can be found on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search The Locals. And I'll post those links on the Dan Armstrong Waipaking Country Facebook page. I'll leave you now with a clip from next week's episode. But until next time, thanks for listening. Cheers. Haerera. Rangiapia was not a fighting part. It was just an open village. And it was a place of sanctuary for women, children and elderly men. And one of the reasons that they had gone to Rangiapia is that after the... Um, Battle at Rangiriri in November 1863, Governor Gray wrote to the King of Tanga and said, don't bring your women and children into the fighting par again. It's, they're in harm's way. Take, take them to a place of safety and, and they'll be protected there. So the King of Tanga think about that and, and they send messages back to the government that Rangiafi is the place of sanctuary for women and children and the old men. So there's an assumption there that, that Gray had already said that such places will not be attacked. So Rangiafia is surely, it's a sanctuary, it will be protected, it, its status will be recognised. The governor has said this. That doesn't happen. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.